So we've been talking about the nature of God and his characteristics, and we've gone through several several of them. Okay, so we're going to start today with um, his righteousness. Okay, God's righteousness. So you can flip, I think we're somewhere around page 10. So when you think about God's righteousness, I'm going to do a little writing on the board. When you think about God's righteousness, um, there's kind of a definition there. And God, you should angle it just a little bit. Just no, that's good. It will kind of easy to get you. Tough. Is it good to read there? I don't know. That works. I'll have to move in and out. All right. We're working out. <laughs> okay. So when we think about that, um, there's there's some basic things that we want to like clarify. Like, what does that mean? Right? What's our definition when we say God is righteous? And um, let's look at a couple of verses of Scripture, and then we'll kind of go through our definition. So Deuteronomy 32.4, Psalm 119.137. Here's a couple of them if we want to look at them together. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Psalm 119.137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Okay, so look at that, Psalm 118. It's a righteous are you. Okay, so righteous is the Lord himself. And upright are what? Judgments. His judgments. Okay, so when we think about God's righteousness, he always does right. He does right always. What's the negative way of saying that? Never does wrong, right? Right? He never, never does wrong. Never does. And so that's that's one aspect of it. And then what is that? What do you think that means? How's his righteousness? When you think about his judgments, what does that mean if to have righteous judgments? So if you were a judge, I would say his assessments or his judgments. Judgments yeah. <laughs> uh, are spot on. Yeah, his judgments are spot on. Okay, and so one analogy I was thinking of is like when we think about a judge, right? They sit upon and they rule over cases, and a lot of times they have to decide guilty or innocent. And then if they're guilty, what is the what, they, what is the punishment? What is the sentence? Right. So he always um, rightly right rewards good, and what's the opposite? Right, punish evil. And so he always does that perfectly. Right? He always does that perfectly. In so a sense, wouldn't that mean he defines what is good and what is evil? Yeah, yeah. So and we're going to see, like, we'll talk about righteousness versus his goodness. And so the righteousness has a lot to do with the way in which he acts on what is, what is right. And goodness is a lot to do with determining what the value, how do you value what is good, how do you, whatever is not good is what is evil. So that goodness and righteousness kind of work hand in hand. And he determines, that's right, that's a good point. That's a good point. So I think what, I was going to talk about this earlier, like when you ask, you know, is God righteous, right? You think about that. Is God righteous? I would say, sometimes we ask this, there's nothing wrong with asking this, but there's something kind of with this question that's kind of hidden in there. 
who are we, right, we're measuring God here, right? Is he righteous or is he not? See, when you ask this question, right, you got two answers. Well, what that means is you have, or we have, an idea in our mind of what righteousness is, and then we measure God up against this. Does that make sense? So what are some ways in which people will sometimes see things in the in world or see things in the scripture where they might ask this question, is God righteous to do that? Old Testament. Old Testament, Slaughtering right? Slaughtering of the Canaanites, women right. and children. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah. So you see it in scripture. You think, oh, here's what, here's what I think righteousness is. Here's what I see God doing. And we've got some serious questions. Yeah. Well, the whole book of Habakkuk is devoted to the question of, is God righteous? Yeah. Because what he's doing does not seem, even to Habakkuk, to mm-hmm. be righteous. Mm-hmm. And it just seems, this can't be right, this can't be right, this can't be right. Mm-hmm. Any, anything outside of the scripture or in other places in scripture, right, where we ask, is God righteous? I think uh, somebody's infertile been trying to have babies mm-hmm. for 10 years mm-hmm. and sees you know, a woman with seven children with five different fathers mm-hmm. who goes, and each of them is in foster care, mm-hmm. and wonders, why does she have babies? Mm-hmm. And I don't. Yeah. It almost seems like um, those who are evil are being rewarded, yeah. and those who are good are being punished. Yeah. sense. And so I think one thing as we get, get and talk about his, his characteristics, one thing we can want to be careful of is allowing our kind of subtly defining the characteristics outside of God and his nature and how he's revealed himself. And then measuring him by what we, either our culture, our family, all these different things have somehow influenced our, our preconceived notion of what righteous is. Mm-hmm. And then we measure God, right? Okay, he falls short or he's, he's above that, right? And so sometimes we might ask um, instead, you know, what, what does God say is righteous, right? And so in a sense, we look at God, we study God and we look at who he is, what he says, what he does, and he's the standard. Right? He sets the he sets the the definition understand, as to what is righteous. So when we look at God and He does something, right? If it if it seems to not match our definition of righteousness, right? That means this is what what needs to change. We need to understand righteousness in maybe a different sense, or maybe we're missing something about how is that righteous in the eternal scheme of things. Okay. So I think where this gets tricky. Mm-hmm. is when you see one thing about the nature. When you're, you're, you're trying to allow God speak, to speak for himself, yeah. and you see aspects of scripture in which God def- defines himself as with certain characteristics, mm-hmm. and you can't, and then you see other aspects in scripture and you're, that seem to contradict what he's revealed yes. about himself yes. in, in other spheres, and it's just like trying to reconcile those two. Yeah. So, like, can you guys think of, or can you, like, what's, a, what's an example, maybe a couple of things, maybe something in Scripture where God says this about himself, and then he says something else? Well, what's, I mean, with Jonah, the whole the idea of Jonah, that God is his, his loving kindness, he, like, he's mm-hmm. slow to anger, and, um, and... Bounding love? 
Yes. It's in there somewhere. Yes. Something, something like that. And then, <laughs> and then where when you look at the, like the old the Old Testament, yeah. and you're like, whoa, like I I it's I don't see that same like that gentle, merciful, mm-hmm. patient mm-hmm. God in this in the same way. Yeah. And then I know it's oversimplified, and I, I think, mm-hmm. but that would be a yeah, kind of like a, exactly. So sometimes we have righteousness and uh, and maybe justice. Yeah. He's righteous and just, and then maybe sometimes that's held maybe against maybe God's love, His compassion, His mercy, in a sense. Like how do those two? Well, I think like even there's some things like uh, what does His justice mean? He defines it: the soul that sins shall die. The father will not be put to death for the sins of the the sins of the son, the son mm-hmm. for the sins of the father. And then you have Him saying. Slaughter the offspring of the Midianites. Mm-hmm. Right? These aren't the exact ones who committed the sin, but wiped them out anyway. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, what is justice? You yourself say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yes. Yes. So the Old Testament is full of things like that. Yeah. So we, when we come to the text in Scripture, there's a there's a point at which um, we have to allow. I think what we're saying here is that we're building up. A picture of God and definitions of justice and righteousness from Scripture, and when we have those two seemingly contradictory things, we have to allow the Scriptures to affirm that they're both true. And so we have to figure out how do we balance those things that seem to be um, at tension, maybe instead of, a, instead of a contradiction with one another. Yeah, and I think one thing about um, the living God, it's like Islam will say whatever he says is righteous. Mm-hmm. So he can contradict himself, he can do whatever, and that's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. But in, in scripture, God will make a statement that God cannot lie. Mm-hmm. So he, when he gives a statement about what is righteous, mm-hmm. he also obligates himself to do it. Yeah. So in one sense, you know, the law comes from him, Mm-hmm. But he's also obligated to do it, where Islam just gets around it. Well, whatever he does is righteous, just deal with it. So he can be inconsistent, but God basically, in saying that, holds himself yeah. to his own standards. Right. And that's something that when we talk about, um, sometimes they're called his perfections or his attributes, right? We, he's never choosing one over the other, right? He, when he's acting justly, it's not that he's not acting out of love and compassion. So they're always work. He's always those things, all the time. And so, we have to allow ourselves to have a God who is always just, always righteous, always good, and to kind of allow ourselves to maybe receive that interpretation of the events in light of how can He be all of these things um, at the same time. And uh, so. The fact that he's always right, he always does what is, whatever he does is right, never does anything wrong, he rewards good, he punishes evil. We take that and we look at God is also love. Okay, God is also love. And scripturally, when we think about what love is, let's read, let's go to a couple of places. Um, let's go to 1 John.
And there's a couple of verses here. I thought we would just to get a little bit more context. Um, we would read through or in chapter four. And thought from seven. It's hard for me to find a find a place to stop. Full, full of how much, um, how love is related to God and God's love in us. So, um, I think I'm going to go. Down through 16. Okay, so we're in 1 John chapter 4, starting 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So when we think about, he tells us specifically, we ought to love because God is love. And we love, we're born of God. And then he gives us the, the first and the clearest example. What's the, what's the example? We know love because of what? How was it made visible or manifest? He sent his one and only son. Yeah. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And uh, so when you think about love... Um, there's a very, very different, um, I mean, there's many different definitions, but when we think about love and God being love, there's a, certain, there's a sense in which it's very different in that there's a, it's about giving of self to others. Okay? God's love is shown in a giving of himself to us, to others. It's focused on the other giving of himself to others. And you think about 1 Corinthians 13 in the passage about what love is like. There's not a focus on self. Right? It's a focus on for the good of others. And so that's kind of contrast, right? What are some, when we think about love, what are some, I looked up love in uh, like our current dictionary, and it was like strong pleasure in. right? It's the, the satisfying of something that you truly like or enjoy or find pleasure and you love something love someone so there's kind of a, a difference a contrast there between them okay. um, so how does that kind of maybe push against is there any way in which that comes up against or seems to contrast when we talk about God being just and righteous 
have the worldly comment that um, how could a loving God send people to hell? Yeah. And I think, I was thinking about this, that I think hell oftentimes challenges both, um, depending on your, your view of man, your view of God, hell can really challenge both things. Um, when you have um, people where we don't believe that man is as wicked or as sinful as he is described in Scripture, hell can seem to be something that's unjust. How can it be eternal? How can it be conscious? How can it be this tormenting place? And as well, it can challenge your view of love. How can God be loving for, for, that, exist, for that to exist? And so it definitely challenges. Um, I think when you think about the suffering examples you get, right? Whenever we suffer, it challenges our view of what does it mean to be a loving God? And so let's kind of look at both of those in light of um, like the, the central aspect of our belief is Christ and his death on the cross. So I was thinking as well, when you compare these two, how does, how does the cross display kind of either one of those or both of them? God's righteousness and justice, or how does it display his love? Does it display one or the other? Both at the same? What do you think? Without Christ dying on the cross, we would not be forgiven. And it was through his death mm -hmm. that our sins are forgiven and without that, we'd all be more or less, you could say, just doomed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, through Adam and Eve, we would just be doomed for. Yeah. Actually, some people would say, "Hell here on their on earth forever." Mm -hmm. And so that really highlights His love for us, yes. right? Yes. We're lost and doomed to hell without the cross. So it's definitely a picture, greatest picture of love that we see. That's what John points to, right? This is love. So is love only for the chosen? So that's a good that's a good question. You mean the elect, right? The, those who are saved. So and I guess maybe this would be a follow follow up question like does God does God love those who are lost and who will you know, go and, and suffer torment in hell? Is that kind of another second way of phrasing that? If, his God, if God he only loves knows, the elect, right? then... He already, he's already elected. Yes. So, so he already knows. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just, just popped in there. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a, pretty big, it's a pretty big question. I don't like how you chose that definition from the dictionary. The world views love. If the world doesn't know God, either, they don't know the actual definition. Yeah, and I mean, I think in the first place, um, there's a sense in which God does love all of creation, okay? The, the elect and the non-elect. And, you know, um, I think it was Jesus that talked about the rain that falls. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And there's a certain measure of grace and love that God has given to 
both the elect and those who are who, who will suffer in hell that they are given grace to live day by day to experience the, the goodness of God poured out when we could be uh, sent immediately to hell for for our sins, right? And there's a sense in which he's long-suffering and he's patient. Um, but, but definitely there's a place in which um, there are objects of his grace and objects of his wrath, for sure. So that's a short, that's a short little. But we're going to be getting into that, how does how his righteousness and, and his love, his goodness and his determining of all things, how do those things all fit together? Is there any way in which you could say his cross demonstrates his righteousness or his justice? It's a perfect sacrifice. So it had to be perfect to satisfy his wrath. This is the gospel presentation. I mean, you keep hell on the cross, and this is God's love, God's justice, God's righteousness. It all works together with the gospel presentation. Yeah. So this is what the gospel is. That's yeah. It all works together with the love. Yeah, and so sometimes we don't sometimes we don't make that explicitly clear that Jesus why did Jesus die on the cross? Okay, God has wrath, right? What is he he's filled with wrath towards what? Towards sin and sinners. And he could just he could just forgive and say, Oh, forget about it. I forgive that sin, right? But that would eliminate his justice, right? So in the cross Right, we're seeing that not only does God have wrath towards sin, but He actually does punish sin, and He punishes it uh, perfectly. Right, He punishes it perfectly. And so, when you think about what is shown on the cross, it's in a sense it's the greatest display of God's wrath and the greatest display of His love meeting together at the same at the same time. Um, we would have to suffer for an eternity in hell. To pay for, right, or to be punished right, rightly for our sin, Jesus takes on all of that sin of all the believers to be, to not only allow them to be forgiven, to, but to pay their debt, to pay our debt. And if if there was no cross, if he could wave a wand and just erase the sins of the elect, right, then that would make hell a place of arbitrary cruelty. Mm-hmm. Like it just exists because I just decided not to wave the wand over them. Yeah. Um, we are not forgiven because God waved a wand over us. We're yeah. forgiven because Jesus suffered. Yeah. Because God suffered God's own wrath mm-hmm. for what I've done. So, I mean, yeah, it, it maintains the integrity of his justice. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives a different perspective to think about your sin, mm-hmm. to realize that Christ endured the amount of punishment and that he endured and the punishment he endured on the cross is directly related to all of our sins specifically. So that weight of that wrath of God, God's wrath against all those sinners was poured about upon, upon Christ. Right? Something that he, um, you know, if there was any way possible, let this cup pass from me. So it was not something that was done lightly okay so we see kind of see that they, they both are, are displayed there there through the cross um, I also thought too um, it might be um, 
we'll get to it in a little bit, but just when you think about um, God's attributes, there's often times where these are one of the areas where people will say that there's contradictions in the Bible because they believe that love is a certain way and it has to exclude this certain, right? It has to be loving without any judgment, without any wrath. Or likewise, righteousness, there can't be any mercy or compassion. So um, oftentimes, understanding that you can have these two attributes that help define one another in a sense, not necessarily that they, they would contradict one another. I thought before we go on, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, had the wedding yesterday, and uh, so it's a great, great passage. But when we think about God being love, I thought that we would read from Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And when we think about it, 1 John commands us, right? God is love, and we must love one another, right? So the, the context of this writing is that we're talking about how to live as a church. How should the Corinthian church live towards one another, okay? And so he's talking about in, verse, in chapter 12, with one body within many members, different gifts. In 14, they're talking about prophecy and tongues, and but in the middle, he's, he's talking about at the end of 12, I'll show you still more. <coughs> um, so let's read um, just from 4 uh, through uh, four through 7. Got it, Andy? Go. First Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yeah, and so one thing that's really absent from there is any kind of self, right? Self-pleasing, self-satisfying, self-whatever, right? There's a focus on um, for the good, for the good of others. Which, going back to that question of does God only love the elect, um, just thinking about that, he's not withholding any love from anybody. So, if someone chooses to follow Christ, he's not going to withhold his love from them. And so, I don't know, I think about that too with that question. Mm-hmm. He's not going to withhold his love from somebody yeah. that seeks him. So, if you seek Christ, he will love you. Yeah. And I think with one thing that we'll get to here in a bit is that when you think about. Um, God's love towards us and his work in saving us. When we think about election, when we think about, um, we get into that discussion of God's will, our will, right? And how do we understand how those two things uh, fit together? And I'm going to just tell you, it's something that there's things that are affirmed in Scripture that very, very often, I think our key mistake is that we see something that's clearly revealed in Scripture and that we're not wrong in that, and then we say that means this other thing can't be true. Okay, and that's I think where we make most of our mistake is that that means that you know we're not making a decision and we're not responsible. Well, it says we are making this right. That means God's not. Well, no. So there's this really this tension that we have to go into it saying, I'm not God. I don't understand, and I didn't want to look and look to Scripture as to help explain to me how God relates to us. 
how his goodness and righteousness and love works out in the salvation of man. And in all those areas where we don't understand it, we trust him to help help us and we go with and follow what we do understand. But there's none of us that are going to say, okay, I've got a perfect one. Let me just explain it, right? So if you're looking for that teacher, it's not going to be... But, but we do have the scriptures, right? So we do have the scriptures. So we'll continue to look and dig into it. And I think when we consider, does God love the non-elect? In all the history of mankind, there has never been any anyone who ever taught to love your enemies prior to really explicitly in Jesus. And there's there's hints of it in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. the, the Jonah story, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of loving our enemies, and that that is one of the ways that we image God, right? Mm-hmm. We reflect his character. That tells us right away whether or not God loves mm-hmm. the unelect, right? Yeah. Like, loving is something God does very well. We can s- begin to scratch the surface of what that means and what that looks mm-hmm. like, but we can be confident that he has love towards his enemies because mm-hmm. he tells us to. Yeah. He's not going to tell us to do something that he himself does not do. All yeah. of his commands are ways that we can reflect his, his character and his goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's always a there's always a mystery, like in the sense that every lost person could be, you know, someone that God is saving. So none of us ever know that what's going to happen. So like what you're you're saying, you have to go in there and know and assume, right, that I, every person that I meet, no matter how unredeemed, right, they they seem and how lost they seem, uh, they're identical to us before we were redeemed. And so we assume God could do the exact same thing with every single person that we encounter. I think another thing, too, is love is not binary. Mm -hmm. Either there's love or no love. Mm -hmm. Um, There's degrees of love. I love my children more than other children. I love my wife more than other women. <laughs> Much more. I said I love Becky. That said, I love Becky more than my other wives. <laughs> I mean, all that to say, it is sort of like God had, had yeah. discriminating mm-hmm. love for Israel versus mm-hmm. some of the others. So, I yeah. mean, if you get into this binary all or nothing with love, mm-hmm. then that's just not how it's expressed in Scripture either. I think that that's what I was going to say, something along those lines where I wonder if sometimes we we link <clears throat> love and election mm-hmm. together in a, yeah, in a way that scripture doesn't allow us to. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, we assume that the to love is to elect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. wonder if that's the hiccup. Right, yeah. That's good. Good. Yeah, because each one has its own little, I mean, little or big difference between them. Mm. So, goodness. Let's talk about goodness, right? So we got righteousness, love, that goodness. And, um, right, and so this is kind of getting to... Um, Brianna, you're, you kind of talk about the standard. So Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good 
His loving kindness is everlasting, his faithfulness to all generations. And so, in a sense, goodness it has an aspect in which it's like righteousness, but it's almost, uh, it has a lot to do with what, what the difference in, like, value, okay? What do you value as what is good, right? And I think one place I see this is, like, imagine the, the contrast if, if there were no goodness or no standard. And so sometimes think about um, a worldview, say, of a, an atheist or a materialistic person, okay? They believe, they often believe that everything that exists it's just matter and energy, okay? Particles, atoms, molecules, no purpose, okay? No, no divine will, no divine intellect, okay? They're just matter and energy that are colliding, reacting, right? Everything is pure accident, nothing is being caused. And those. So in that kind of a, a worldview, even your mind, even your brain, your emotions, your words, they're all just purposeless, interactions of matter and energy. There is nothing of value, nothing is good, nothing is bad, nothing is right, nothing is wrong. There's no purpose, there's no love, there's no justice, it's just matter and energy. And everything else is just kind of something that we're pretending is real. And I've heard some atheists uh, in debates talk about, well, we ought to live as if, as if there was a God, even though we know there isn't, right? And so they're kind of getting this idea that, like, to really, um, like, one of the, like, Hawking often said that, you know, to be a real materialist, you have to just be someone who believes that it's just fate and everything's just a reaction and whatever is going to happen is going to happen because of the laws of chemistry and physics, right? However those particles interact, that's what's going to happen. There's no mind, there's no intellect, there's no purpose to anything. And so... The, Contrary to that, we have God who is the standard of what is good, right? Everything that God is defines for us what is good, and then anything that differs, right, and goes against what God is, and falls into the, the evil, good versus evil. And so it's often something, it's a great place to interact with people who question, right, the existence of evil, because in that question, they're assuming that there must be good and evil, right? How can God allow evil in this world if he was a good God? And so when we look at scripture, we see over and over that God is defined as the, the standard of what is good. Um, taste and see that the Lord is good. So you're looking at God, you're experiencing God, tasting what um, what is good. And so um, we talked about a little bit. So what are the things, what are the biggest things that as believers too sometimes cause us to maybe question or not live as if God were good. What what is it that challenges our belief sometimes that God is good? I think it's difficult because we see everything in the fallen state. Like talking about, you know, in Genesis when God made it and it was good, we haven't got to see it Mm -hmm. like that. We've Mm -hmm. only seen it with sin. So it's hard to see that 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 once was yeah. So not only what we're seeing is all tainted by sin, but even our own eyes and our own perception. I know personally, um, you know, love to talk about loving your kids, right? When your kids get sick or something happens to them, you're like, 
why you know and it, you know there's and so it's that that balancing between our view of what's what we think and I have like admittedly I have like um, from an unbeliever I had like the American dream life is good I have kids and family and a job and material things and so like the God often reminds me that what's good in my mind is sometimes influenced by who I was and my flesh and those type of things. I remember when Brooke, when her hair started falling out, I was like, what's going on? Brooke, our middle child, has alopecia. And her, she doesn't have, right, I don't know how to describe it. She has her hair now, but there was a time when it almost all fell out. And I would just, she was crying about it, and she was very sad about it. And I was like, you know, it really like helped me think through, okay, God is good, and nothing happened. And so we had a lot of talks about how that can help us to long for and yearn for heaven, to long for the redemption of our bodies from sickness, those type of things. What I mean, you guys run into people or that you experience where sometimes there's a certain, something challenges or goes against their belief. Well, the belief. great thing, um, I can't remember which one of the great four, four atheists it was, but he said the existence of children's, ho- uh, children's cancer hospitals yeah. There cannot be a good God mm-hmm. in the same existing in the same universe as children's cancer hospitals, mm-hmm. and that and you know it's it's what yeah. you just said it's the suffering of children it's the fact that we live in the post fall mm-hmm. world where we can find traces of goodness and beauty and truth in the world mm-hmm. still we still see that what God made is good but there is also so much mm-hmm. like every aspect of it is also fallen yeah. And so we experience that, we see others experience it, and it, it's experienced in suffering. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is it that makes us question God's goodness? It's suffering. Yeah. If we're not suffering, we're not questioning his goodness. If we don't see suffering, we're not questioning his goodness. Yeah. And sometimes I've asked, you know, consider the alternative. Consider that, okay, let's say, God, we're going to live up to your, um, your expectation of what's good. So we take a world where it's filled with sin, and God removes suffering. So... What would that would that fit into God's nature to have a world where He gives us unlimited joy and pleasure and zero pain and suffering, where we're still at the same time we're, we have a world that's filled with sin? Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a sense in which you're thinking about the world in its fallen state, where it fits to have a world where we're all sinning, we're surrounded in a world of sin, and we're experiencing those consequences. That knowing God for who He is, we should expect. That it would be in a world filled with suffering. What about, I mean, does the cross, I think, I always like to relate to the cross. Does the cross say anything that speaks to God's goodness? Is there any way in which it shows God's goodness? Challenges God's goodness? I think we're so familiar with the cross um, that it's not as horrific as it should be. And, um, and I'm kind of thinking through this because, you know, Good Friday's coming up and I yeah. kind of come up with a Good Friday message. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I live my life. Think through it. Think through it. <laughs> uh, but just the idea, like, one thing that I hear more and more now than I did maybe 10, 15 years ago is the cross is cosmic child abuse. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of jerk God would 
do something like that to his son because mm -hmm. somebody else got in trouble. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. there's a um, the display of God's wrath on the cross is very troubling for a lot of people, and just seeing the goodness of that and the justice of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd imagine if you're Mary um, watching, you know, your son suffer like that. Um, those kinds of thoughts would go through your mind too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's, you know, you think about it from there at the time, right? And then we think about the disciples, you know, after, let's say, that after the resurrection, the view of the cross kind of changes, right? It goes from this loss, this defeat, this crushing of the sun, to now this redemption. And so looking at the cross through the lens of the resurrection, um, we can see that it's part of God's plan. Let's go to Acts. Um, look real quick as we're coming near to the end of our time. So Acts chapter 2. So if you guys remember... Um, after the resurrection, the beginning of Acts and 1, we have the ascension. Um, we've got the disciples, right? They, they replace Judas. Then they have Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. It, he empowers the apostles. And they begin speaking and preaching the gospel in all different languages. Okay, Peter stands up to explain what's happening. He says... Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he begins to explain what happened. Right? He quotes from, from Joel. And then down in verse 22, he kind of gives them the current context, like what is going on right now. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so he speaks to and explains, and uh, at the end we see that... Uh, in verse 39, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So it's the gospel, right? It's the gospel, and we see that what was the worst possible thing that could have happened, right, through the resurrection becomes this, this hope of salvation for all men, uh, all women of all times, all cultures. And so kind of God's goodness is really displayed through that. And so there's a sense in which a lot of times if you interpret your life and your smaller sufferings and struggles through the picture of the cross and how um, Jesus endured those sufferings and endured that um, punishment in our sake and how God took something that was such an evil act. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. So God worked a great, great good through these evil acts of these men. 
And so we see God's, not only God's righteousness displayed in that he punishes all of our, all of our sin on the cross, his love poured out, but also his goodness in that through the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. So that's leading us to, what, what's, our, what's our next topic? You guys look at Oh, oh no, piece of cake. Right. I think we've got time, two or three minutes. <laughs> so I think we'll we'll save next time. I think next time our discussion, and you guys can can read ahead or study up or get your questions out. I'm sure Dave will be ready to answer them. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about God's sovereignty. And if you look, um, you've got God's will and His providence about all that takes place um, over human history. His eternal plan, right? What does the scripture say about his eternal plan from before the world was founded? And how does that affect God in relationship to sin? If God determines all things and man has sinned. How is God related to that? And, uh, you know, what about our will? So we'll have those discussions. Again, hopefully I think it'll be a good time where we look at the scriptures. We take away some good principles and truths. Um, and hopefully you'll have a better answer to some questions, but you'll probably have a lot more questions to spur on your study, right? I know I always have a lot more questions where I feel like, oh, okay, that that helps, right? And then I keep looking, and that relationship, it grows closer where I have a deeper, deeper appreciation and love for both God's sovereignty and for how he has saved us. Okay? Let me close in prayer for us. Father, I thank you for the discussion that we have. I pray that your word, where you speak to your goodness um, and your righteousness and your love for us, I pray that you would help us when we read your word um, to, to pause, to come with humility, to reserve our criticisms and our judgments, and to open up our heart and our mind to just listen and look into your word and, and say, what are you saying about yourself? What is it about you that makes you good and righteous and loving? How is that shown? How have you acted? What have you said? And I pray as we absorb and soak up that those words and those events and those teachings that you would begin to bear fruit in our life and help us as Brianna was saying as we look at this world that we're surrounded by sin, the curse of sin, the suffering of sin Help us to know how to bring you great glory and to see things in your eyes and to love in the way that you love and to act in a way that is good and righteous in the way that you are. And even more than that, to find more and more um, to worship you as we see the gap between our lack of goodness and righteousness and love. We see your perfect goodness and righteousness and love. As that gap grows and grows and grows, I pray that you would magnify Christ who has been crucified on the cross to fill that void and to bridge that gap. pray that you would help us and just bring us to greater worship of you today and this week in your name. Amen.